Aging Matters is brought to you in part by Kathy Corridan, Senior Real Estate Specialist. Kathy is a realtor with KW Metro Center in Alexandria and works with seniors in Alexandria, Arlington, and D.C. to make selling their home and moving less stressful and more successful. More information is available at 703-971-7237 or ccatkw at gmail.com. Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERALP Arlington, 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. Low vision is defined as vision loss that can't be corrected with glasses, contacts, or surgery. Recent studies reveal that the annual number of new cases of blindness and low vision among people aged 45 years and older, is estimated to double during the next 30 years. Today, my guest is Kendra Farrow, Interim Project Director of the Older Individuals Who Are Blind Technical Assistance Center. She's going to talk about age-related eye diseases that cause low vision and types of rehabilitation services and vision technologies available for older adults. She's also going to describe resources provided by the older individuals who are Blind Technical Assistance Center. So welcome, Kendra, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Cheryl. I'm glad to be here. Okay, well, maybe you could give us a little bit of your own background on this important topic before we start um, doing the questions. Sure. Earlier in my life, um, I am a person with vision loss myself, and So throughout my life, I've had uh, limited vision or less than what we would call 20-20 vision. And as I have gotten older and as many of us experience, um, you know, as we age, things change with our body. And so because I already had some vision loss at this point, I am closer to being totally blind than I was earlier in my life. So when I answer questions today, I'm speaking from some personal experience, as well as um, I have a master's degree in vision rehabilitation therapy, and I have worked with individuals who are losing their vision for over 14 years, just helping them one-on-one to come up with strategies and learn how to use devices that help them to remain independent. Well, that certainly gives us a lot of confidence in you giving us good information today about this timely topic. So let's get started by you explaining to us, our listeners, what are the symptoms in older adults that might mean that there are changes that are occurring in their vision? Very good question. So there are two main symptoms that people notice. First is that they can't read as clearly, that the print just isn't as clear as it used to be or that they just have to be closer to see things. Or maybe um, when they look at people's faces, they have trouble um, recognizing those individuals. So that's, that's one of the symptoms. The second one is a little bit different, and this has to do with 
peripheral field loss, not the loss of the sharpness or the acuity of the vision, but the loss of the peripheral vision. And the first symptom people might notice is that they have difficulty at night seeing outside in a dark or a dimly lit area. Now, this does happen to some extent naturally with aging. So not every reduction in in difficulty seeing at night is going to indicate that there is a significant vision loss problem, but it doesn't hurt to also have regular eye exams to know whether there is something more advanced going on that needs to be treated. And we'll talk about this more as we go through our questions today, I believe. Okay. And I believe there's also another condition that you often hear about with people as they're beginning to get older, perhaps in their 40s. I believe it's called presbyopia. So can you talk about that and exactly, or at least around what age does it usually occur? And what is the treatment then for that particular condition? So sometimes also pronounced as presbyopia, and I'm not sure if there's a right or a wrong way to pronounce it, but it's also known as the arms not quite long enough syndrome. And if, if you're over the age of 40, you've probably experienced this already, um, that you're trying to look at something and the further away that you hold it from your face, the easier it is to see it or the clearer it gets. And the reason this happens, there's a part of our eye called the lens of the eye, and it's kind of in the center of our eye, and it's shaped kind of like an M&M. It's thinner on the outside and fatter in the middle. And when we're young, it changes shape so that you can accommodate to see something far away and then look at something close up. And you can adjust that vision because of that easy accommodation. And as we age, just like other parts of our body, we lose that elasticity and that flexibility um, throughout our body, but in our lens as well. And so when the lens can't change shape to accommodate for both far away and close up, then we have this condition called presbyopia it is almost always um, able to be treated through um, bifocal glasses. And so that's the good news about it, even though almost everybody experiences it, that it is treatable. I was also wondering, Kendra, is that probably a good time to go get those reading glasses that you see in the drugstore? You can do that, but it would probably be a good time to go get a dilated eye exam, too. If you have never had one in your life, this would be a great time to go to the eye doctor and just make sure that there's no other age-related things creeping in there with your vision that might need to be treated. Um, What we do know is that there's a lot of treatments out there, and so treating things early is is our best um, way to prevent vision loss is is to get to the eye doctor and and have an appointment from time to time. And we're going to be talking more about uh, treatments a little bit later, as, as you had mentioned already. Help us understand the difference, the, these different terms that we often hear. We've mentioned vision loss already, but we've also heard impaired vision and low vision. What's the difference between these three conditions, and then how do they compare to legal blindness? So I like to think of vision loss as a spectrum, with on one side, you have your 20-20 or typical vision that most people have. And on the other side of the spectrum, we have no light perception at all. So total blindness. 
And if you think about this, on the eye chart, there's a lot of different lines. So you picture as the numbers get bigger, 20, 30, 20, 40, 20, 50, as those numbers increase across um, the eye chart, that those are the smallest um, characters you can see on the eye chart, um, that is starting to be vision loss. Now, much of vision loss can actually be treated through prescription lenses, either glasses or contact lenses. So, um, you know, that's why it's important to go to the doctor because sometimes your vision loss can be completely um, compensated for through those prescription lenses. And if there's not um, a way to treat it, then we might call it low vision because that is vision loss that cannot be corrected through prescription lenses or through medication or some kind of surgery. And when we can't correct it, then we're in the low vision category. And if you think again about the spectrum, we go 2070, 2080, um, 2100, 2200, those are our standard measurements on the eye chart. And basically what that means, let me just explain that a little bit. So the 20 is the distance, how many feet they test you from the standard eye chart. And the second one is how far away someone with 20-20 vision could see that target. So um, let's say for instance, Cheryl, that you um, have 20-20 vision and I have 2200 vision. If you are standing 200 feet away from the eye chart and I'm standing 20 feet away from the eye chart, we are seeing it with the same clarity. Um, hopefully that, that clears it up so that, that you have a good sense as to how those numbers work. And this just has to do with the, the sharpness of the vision. And that's very helpful because I think people often hear the term 2020 and they haven't really any clue as to what that means. So I, I appreciate that. Uh, that clarification. I was also wondering, since you've helped to very nicely explain these various terms, at what age do age-related eye diseases usually begin to occur? Well, there's not a particular age, but we look at the, the prevalence of vision loss, and I looked up some statistics so I'd be able to share them today. And so when I looked at the age group from 65 to 74, the prevalence of vision loss is 4.2%. But when we move into the 75 and older category, the prevalence increases, it doubles over more than doubles to 9.1%. So as we age, we're at a higher risk for age-related vision loss. And that's what... Um, you know, we need to understand that that we're at a higher likelihood the longer we live that we're going to face some kind of age-related impairment. And I didn't know whether you wanted to mention the some of these age-related eye diseases. We aren't going to go into the clinical aspects, but sure. would it be helpful to at least discuss so people, when they hear these terms, are more familiar with the fact that they might be age-related eye diseases? Right. So the most common ones that we probably run into, the most common one I would say is cataracts. But cataracts can be treated like 99.9% .9 of the time, a cataract can be removed with total restoration of vision. Um, the ones that we have more difficulty with and, and cause the, 
the impairments that we really have to be concerned about are um, age-related macular degeneration, glaucoma, and diabetic retinopathy. They're the most common, and there are other ones for sure. There's a lot of different ways people can lose vision. Um, with macular degeneration, um, the individual loses vision from the central or most detailed part of what they can see. So if you think of your eye or your retina as a target, with the center of it being where you see the most detailed vision, um, that's the part of the eye that's being affected by this condition, and it affects that target area. So wherever you move your eye to look, it's causing a blind spot right on top of the most detailed part of your vision. But typically, the peripheral vision or side vision where we detect motion and shapes, that part of your vision remains intact. So individuals with macular degeneration may get to the point where they're legally blind, but they rarely ever are totally blind. And I think that that's a really important thing for, for people to recognize because it's scary when the doctor might say you're legally blind. It does not mean you're totally blind. Legally blind is just a term that um, might be used to, to um, determine eligibility with Social Security for um, disability payments or for certain programs, rehabilitation programs, sometimes they require legal blindness to be eligible for services. But individuals who are legally blind still have a lot of usable vision. For instance, earlier in my life, I have always been considered legally blind according to the definition but I was able to walk around without a white cane. I was able to read regular print. I just had to hold it closer to my face and make sure I had good lighting. Um, you know, I was able to do a lot of things that I wanted to do in life visually, um, even though I was considered legally blind. So it, it's not it's not a one-size-fits-all thing. Uh, you know, how it interacts for each person is different. So let me go back to the eye conditions um, glaucoma is the most preventable kind of vision loss. Um, somebody that has glaucoma, it sneaks in very slowly. This is the one that starts with the night blindness, would be one of the first symptoms. And it's usually treated either through medication or through surgery. And it's to just control the pressure of the fluid within the eye. And um, it can lead to total blindness if it's not treated. But like I said, it's the most preventable kind of vision loss and has the best, the best uh, rate for treatments out there. And then diabetic retinopathy. Anyone who's diabetic should be going for a dilated eye exam at least once a year or more if recommended by their doctor, their eye doctor, because, um, you know, there are some treatments out there, but prevention, again, being on top of it and getting the treatments early is really the best way to delay vision loss related to diabetes. And that can sneak up on you faster than you think that it might. So again, getting to the eye doctor regularly is a really important thing. One thing that would be also helpful for you to explain a little bit more, Kendra, is how vision loss and these various symptoms, depending on which disease a person might be having, how that impacts their overall health and well-being. Talk a little bit more about that and like physical and mental challenges that that people are are having to deal with. 
Sure. There's, there's a lot of, of things. So if you think functionally, when someone is not recognizing people's faces anymore, having difficulty reading a menu, not feeling confident in walking around outside without tripping over a curb or falling down steps, or maybe they don't feel safe driving anymore. When those functional things start creeping into their life, they tend to stay at home and just choose not to do those activities that might cause them embarrassment or where they might have to um, explain why they're having difficulty or ask for help when they're, they've been so independent their whole life. They just are having a really hard time with that. And so we know when people stay at home, when they choose to limit their activities, that it makes you more sedentary. And anytime you're moving around less, getting less exercise, then we're at higher risk for all kinds of health conditions, as well as being isolated. Um, and it can lead to depression as well, because people are just sad that they're losing vision. And that's a very normal thing to happen with vision loss. It doesn't last forever. And the best thing people can do is to get some services and learn strategies and ways that they can can still function, even though it might be different than how they did it before when they had good 2020 vision. It's interesting hearing you uh, discuss these uh, symptoms or these uh, what uh, the results that might occur. It sounds so much like what's already happened in connection with COVID. And if uh, what was required of older adults, at least in the early stages, and then it's compounded with the possibility of low vision, it can be pretty serious for older adults. Absolutely. This is a huge concern in our field, and there hasn't been enough of research to really tell us, you know, how, how it's all connected and for sure that it's all connected. But for sure, isolation is, is one of the biggest things that we've seen over the years, and that's why... Um, you know, when I was providing services, I would often recommend people join an activity group or a support group or get involved with other people that have vision loss because they um, find so much hope and encouragement by, by those interactions, those relationships. From what I'm hearing you say that if an older adult is diagnosed with the one of these conditions that you've explained uh, already, which of course may cause low vision, would you say that treatment by an eye care professional is really the best first choice? Absolutely. Um, until you go to the eye doctor and know that your condition is not, you know, medically treatable at the moment, there's there's no point in moving forward with services because it might be something that you just need a pair of glasses and upgrade to your glasses or maybe a cataract removed, something that's very treatable. So it's really important to go first and make sure that there is nothing that medically can be done at this time. And, and let me just speak to this too, because oftentimes when people get a diagnosis like macular degeneration, the eye doctor might say something like, there's nothing I can do for your vision right now. And when the person hears that, they think, oh, I don't need to go back to the eye doctor because there's nothing they can do for my vision. And this is a real problem because it is really important, even if you have um, a condition like macular degeneration that might not have a treatment at the moment, 
that you continue to go back on an annual basis or whatever is recommended by the eye doctor because other eye conditions can creep in. You can also develop glaucoma or a cataract or something else that could be treated and prevents additional vision loss on top of your macular degeneration. In addition, there's constantly research going on and macular degeneration is one of those areas that we've seen huge breakthroughs in the last oh, 15-ish years um, where we have treatments that we didn't even have before. So just because there wasn't a treatment last year when you went to the eye doctor doesn't mean that there's not some new medical trial or something you might be eligible for that could be a possible treatment to keep you from losing additional vision. So um, it's really important to go for regular eye exams, even when, even when you do have um, a diagnosis that might seem like it's not very treatable. And it, it is interesting because it didn't occur to me that you could have more than one eye disease, you know, age-related eye disease at the same time. I, I was also wondering then that if a person has low vision and they, the ophthalmologist or the eye professional says there isn't anything I can do, is it usually the case that the ophthalmologist or the eye professional would refer his or her patient for low vision rehabilitation services? Sometimes. <laughs> it's not as common as we would like it to be. Um, and I think some of the confusion comes from the fact that there's there's two different ways that you can get services, and then that these services are not uniformly available in every area. So that, that compounds the complexity of making these referrals. My next question is, where are services for low vision usually offered in, in a community? And I know we're going to be talking more about this uh, later, but kind of give us an overview of what types of services might be available, who are the specialists that provide them, because I suspect that a lot of people, if they don't get a referral, aren't even available, these services, right. so we need to be enlightened. <laughs> a lot of people don't even realize that there are services. So there, there's two different um, paths to receive services. The first one is the medical path, and um, there's optometrists who have received specialized training in low vision strategies and devices. And we refer to them in our field as low vision clinicians. And they're not always optometrists, but they tend to be. Um, and they may work in an office with an occupational therapist or a certified low vision therapist. And these are professionals who um, can follow up then with the recommendations made by the low vision clinician. An exam or um, an assessment by a low vision clinician is usually more involved than like a dilated eye exam. In fact, they don't dilate your eyes during this exam. They um, look to make sure that your prescription glasses are as good as they can be, that you're getting as mo the most out of your vision that you can. And then they look at magnification, they look at glare, they look at... Um, if your color is impaired, um, using different uh, distance magnification, near magnification, all those different things. And then the occupational therapist or the low vision therapist would then follow up with the training um, on those devices and strategies recommended by the clinician. 
In the other path to services, these I'm going to call these rehabilitation services, um, and they focus. They're they're sometimes called blind rehabilitation services. And I want you to remember that vision loss is a spectrum, and the reason that they were called blind rehabilitation services in the past, this is kind of an older term, but it always includes services for individuals who have low vision or usable vision. So just because you're not blind blind, like totally no light perception, it doesn't mean you're not eligible for these services. And that's, that's a huge barrier to people thinking that they can go down this path for services. But essentially, what is really different about these services is that they focus on not just the low vision, but they look at the whole person, how they function, what they need to do. And if there's a way to complete a task that's a non-visual way to complete it. So for instance, learning Braille, that's a non-visual thing. Using um, a long cane to travel to make somebody safe. That is something that we think of for people who are totally blind. But individuals who have usable vision might still have a use for some braille or tactile markings on things. For instance, they might have a microwave in a dark corner of their kitchen. And instead of going to the effort to install new lighting and get everything just perfect so you can visually see it, they're going to suggest, well, why don't we just put some bumps on your microwave panel so you can feel it and then be able to push the right button. It's it's a much less um, <laughs> complex adaptation for something that, that could be so simple. And there's no reason that somebody who still has some usable vision couldn't rely on the sense of touch or their sense of hearing for some of the things that they need to do. So it's it's is looking more comprehensively where the medical the medical path is specifically focused on doing the tasks visually and using the the vision that remains to do those tasks. Okay. Well, we're going to hear more about that and all of the uh, if if there might be some more information that you want to share about those different assessments and services in the second half. But we're going to take a short break right now in case you tuned in late. We're talking with Kendra Farrow, Interim Project Director of the Older Individuals Who Are Blind Technical Assistance Center. And you are listening to WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. Aging Matters on WERA is brought to you in part by Synergy Home Care. Synergy Home Care provides premier in-home care for you or your loved one throughout Northern Virginia, including personal care, homemaker services, companion and memory care, and transportation. Call 703-558-3435 or visit SynergyHomeCare.com for more information. Synergy Home Care will find a care solution to meet your needs. Welcome back. We're having a very good conversation here with Kendra Farrow, Interim Project Director of the Older Individuals Who Are Blind Technical Assistance Center and learning a lot about low vision services. And Kendra, you started talking about some of these before the break, but I wanted to step back a second and just ask if one of our listeners or many of our listeners are, are you know, hearing what you have to say, where could they find them? 
Sure, so I'm gonna give you three resources. The first one we're gonna talk about um, later a little bit more is our Time to Be Bold campaign. And if you go to the website, timetobebold.org, and um, there's a link there that will take you to another page where you can search for services by um, your state that you live in. And then these other two resources are also on that webpage, but I'm going to mention them specifically. Um, if you're not a computer user and you would like to reach out by phone, if that's easier for you, you can call 1-800-232-5463. And this is the American Printing Houses for the Blind um, Connect Center. And this is answered during business hours by individuals who have vision loss themselves and they can help connect you to services in your area. They maintain a directory of services um, for all kinds of things. So um, they're gonna be able to help you with that. And also because they have personal experience with vision loss, they can give you a few little tips over the phone as well. The last um, service that I wanted to mention is um, a virtual, um, I don't know how you call it, school, I guess. Um, they're called the Hadley Institute for the Blind, and their website is hadley.edu. And they have a lot of little short videos you can view on how to do different tasks. They have what they call workshops that you can join and these are virtual like Zoom meetings that you can go to and they have them on different topics. They have like nine different groups each month on, on different things that you can join to find out about technology, gardening, cooking, just different things and they talk about them together in a group and free services. None of this costs you any money to do any of these things that I've talked about today. H-A-D-L-E-Y dot E-D-U is their website. I wanted to get back to the actual visit that might take place for a low vision center or whatever it's called. And you talked a little bit about the assessment visit. Are there different categories then that are discussed as, as people are being interviewed? Yes. So um, we already talked a little bit about the medical model um, services, and they usually take place in a clinic or an eye doctor's office. Um, and the training also usually takes place there. Now, the rehabilitation services, there's a few other professionals that work there that are a little bit different. Um, they might be called vision rehabilitation therapists or rehabilitation teachers. There's two different names for the same type of profession. And then there's orientation and mobility specialists. And um, professionals in these fields, they work under the rehabilitation model, which is a little bit different from the medical model, and they each do their own discipline-specific assessment. So for the vision rehabilitation therapist or rehabilitation teacher, they look at all the tasks that someone might complete in their home. So if it's, you know, adapting things in the kitchen, looking at how they might do a cleaning task if they can't see, if they got all the crumbs off the counter or the table when they're trying to clean up something, um, if they're concerned about using the stove, about reading their mail, writing checks, paying their bills, using a computer, um, just anything that you can think of, leisure activities, reading books, accessing newspapers and magazines, 
all the things that you do around your home typically, um, they would assess all of those areas and then be able to provide strategies and, and devices that could help the individual in those areas. Um, for orientation and mobility specialists, they focus on movement inside and outside the home. So it might be, um, you know, how to travel with your family member, how they can guide you if you're in a crowded area, or it might be um, looking at your steps outside your home and adding some contrasting paint or tape to those steps so that you don't um, trip over them visually. Or maybe it's, um, you know, use of a long cane so that, um, like, if you have that really small field of view when you lose peripheral um, vision with, for instance, glaucoma, you might not um, be able to see very well when you're walking at night. So having uh, the long cane in front of you is just touching the ground in front of you to make sure that you can feel where the curbs are coming up and when you're at the curb cut so you aren't surprised by a step up or a step down, all those things. Um, it just keeps you safe and it's a different way of doing things. What you just described, is that also what's known as a functional vision assessment? So the functional vision assessment usually looks specifically at the vision, and it's going to look at all different types of reading tasks, um, being able to identify colors, like if you're having difficulty telling your black socks from your blue socks, um, if you're having trouble matching your clothes. Um, it also looks at lighting. So lighting is one of those really tricky things that you could have too much of it or not enough of it, and finding just the right level and and color, you know, we can buy lights that are more of a warm color or more of a cool color. And different ones work better for different people. And there's not like a one-size-fits-all recommendation with those types of things. So it's looking at all the different little pieces that go into using the vision well that would be part of the functional vision assessment. And is there a difference, say, between a basic assessment and more comprehensive not really officially, but I would say some professionals um, might do a more basic assessment just because they have so many people that need their services. Um, so they might just ask, you know, well, what are you having difficulty with? And then assess those particular items and provide recommendations where a more comprehensive assessment is going to look at all areas of your life, no matter whether um, the individual is is um, indicating that there's a problem there or not. So um, sometimes people don't mention it, like they might say, well, um, think in, in their head, well, you know, I used to sew, but there's no way you can thread a needle and sew once you've lost vision, I just have to give that up. Or they might say, you know, I used to play golf, but it's, it's too hard, there's no way I can do that. So they don't even mention it because they think that it's impossible. But when you have a comprehensive assessment, they're going to ask all those types of questions. You know, well, what kind of leisure activities did you do before? And, and do you miss doing them? Would you be interested in going back if we could show you a way to do it? Would you be interested in that? And so it digs out more things that, that really, um, you know, go beyond just what the person might expect or think is possible to do with, with their situation. A couple additional thoughts that came to mind as I was listening to you. When a person who has low vision is undergoing this type of assessment, are they usually by themselves or might they be accompanied by a care partner or a family member? 
What's the process in terms of making sure that there's somebody else that's understanding what's going on and and what kind of services are going to be uh, suggested? So just with any kind of other appointments we go to, you know, if, if someone wants to bring their family members with them, they're welcome. And it's not usually, of course, in in the COVID times we're in now, sometimes you can't bring more than one person with you or maybe nobody to an appointment. And that's that's a huge problem. But when we do the services in the home, the rehabilitation model usually does the services one-on-one in the home. And in that case, you know, we're not limited by the family members that can participate in that usually that, you know, if you want to invite your son, your daughter, your husband, your wife, your um neighbor to be part of that appointment, that's, that's welcome. Are these services covered by Medicare or uh, any other kind of insurance plan? That's a good question. So if someone goes to a low vision clinician under the medical model, there's usually, you know, part of that um, visit that's covered through Medicare. Um, And if an occupational therapist is providing Um, some instruction related to the recommendations there, that can usually be covered also through Medicare or Medicaid. However, um, there is no no coverage for the devices themselves. So if you go to the low vision clinician and he says, well, this electronic magnifier that costs $2,000 would help you out and you see it and you like it, you know, there's no coverage for that device. Um, at least within the medical model. Now there is coverage. Um, if the person's a veteran, they can go through the VA and the devices are all covered at 100% coverage through the VA program. Um, and in the rehabilitation model, if you're going through that track of services, it really varies from program to program, but some programs um, do provide things that are more expensive and even things that are less expensive. Um, and like some of the larger devices, like the electronic magnifier I mentioned, that is a very popular item. You know, some programs provide like a loan, like you might pay $25 um, a month or something to borrow a device as opposed to ha- having to purchase it yourself outright. So there's all different ways that it's covered just depending on the rehabilitation program as to how the devices themselves are covered. But the the visits themselves in rehabilitation, the vision rehabilitation therapist or the orientation mobility specialist, there's not usually a charge for any of that service. That's usually free. You've been mentioning these technology devices. Give us a little bit more information about how they can help older adults. What are the most popular? What what do you prescribe the most or what what is suggested the most in? Yes. So I think one of the most popular things that people like are just magnifiers in general, but they really need to be, you know, recommended by a professional because there's a huge variety. It's not quite, um, if you think of it kind of like prescription glasses, but not as many options, I guess, but there are a lot of different types of magnifiers, styles of magnifiers, um, and some of them lend themselves better to different types of tasks. So if you think of of the devices like a toolbox, you know, we have a screwdriver and a hammer in our toolbox, but we don't use them for the same exact task. You know, they, they work slightly different and yet you can 
use a screw to do kind of the same thing as a nail, and yet you're not going to use a screwdriver for a nail, and you're not going to use a hammer for a screw. So um, in the same way, there's different types of magnifiers and devices uh, for magnification, and some of them have lights in them, and they have different types of lights, and so it really um, depends on the individual, and that's one of the most popular things. But of course, they make a lot of, of talking products as well, things like um, clocks, timers, um, indoor-outdoor thermostats, talking scales. That's one of the, the harder ones because, you know, a, the scale is a long way from your face when you stand on it. So a lot of people can't see their scale anymore. So to have a talking one is, is really helpful if you need to monitor your body weight regularly. Um, they make talking blood pressure meters, talking glucometers, you know, all kinds of things for your health that help you to be independent and, and still maintain um, all the numbers for your health that you need to keep monitoring. So given the large number of technology devices that are available and all of this kind of information, is the person who is, you know, helping to make this assessment, does he or she then advise a person with low vision as to what they ought to get? Or is it kind of a, a process where you kind of work out together what will be the best devices and services that uh, a person should have? I was just curious as to how that yeah, works. Yeah, it's more of a team approach because the individual needs to, um, you know, try it out and see just because there are, you know, a talking clock. There, there might be three different talking clocks, but the person might feel that one is better or say they have a hearing impairment. In addition, you know, some of the voices are louder or clearer to understand than others. So it's definitely a team effort and it's not a one size fits all when it comes to devices. Um, the other type of device I wanted to mention, and this is becoming really popular, is that there's so many built-in accessibility features in our mainstream devices. For instance, like an iPhone or an Android smartphone, um, they have built-in things that allow you to manipulate the size and the contrast of what you see on the screen, or you can turn on a, vo a voice um, it's called VoiceOver on an iPhone and TalkBack on an Android phone. And you can turn that on to be able to access it, even if you can't see the text at all. So there's a lot of things that are built in, and the rehabilitation professionals usually know about those things and make you aware or um, help you to learn to use some of those built-in things as well as, as the new devices that you might need to um, learn to use. In your experience, do you find that these rehabilitation specialists also can provide general tips to older adults with low vision as to how to live a more productive life in addition to all of these other services and uh, technology devices? <laughs> oh, there's so many different things that, that um, can be tips. Um, for instance, like contrast is one of the things that is so easy to do. So if you're having trouble um, at dinner with your food on your plate, if you can use a plate that's in contrast to the food or use a plate that's in contrast to the placemat that's underneath. And that's simply just, you know, if, if um, you have a white plate to put a black or a dark blue placemat underneath that plate, it helps it stand out when you don't have so much vision. And at least you'll know where the parameters are of the, the edge of your plate to be able to um, find the food a little easier. Um, you know, just 
using your, your sense of touch and your sense of hearing, there's little tips with that, you know, um, to be able to, to keep yourself safe. If you're, if you're bending over and bumping your head a lot, that you hold your arm out over top of your head, like diagonal across your face, so that when you bend over, you're not whacking your head on the corner of the counter when you throw something in the trash or um, are trying to get the toilet paper out from under the sink and you misjudge the distance. You know, you can easily be hurting yourself in additional ways that are uncomfortable. Um, so just learning those little tips to find a dropped object or um, not using a search pattern. So, you know, whether it's a circular search pattern, start at your feet and work your way out with your hand to feel where it is, or a grid pattern where you go back and forth um, one direction and then the other to cover the entire space. Um, it's just kind of a logical, like problem solving tip to, to help you be able to do some of those things that are difficult. If a person has gone for an assessment and gotten the information they need, but they still have questions or they want to go back for another visit, is that okay? It depends on the type of program um, path that you're on. Often um, under the rehabilitation programs, you absolutely can go back. Um, being part of some kind of um, a group of individuals that has um, similar problems, it's a really um, good place to take those questions because if you're experiencing it, probably someone else has too. So we really find that connecting people with, with others who have um, vision loss as well is, is a great way for them to, you know, learn those new things that might crop up over time. Well, I wanted to spend a little time on the technical assistance center that you're affiliated with, uh, the Older Individuals Who Are Blind Technical Assistance Center. Tell us a little bit more about what it is, where it's located, what is its mission, um, and tell us even how long you've been there. The Technical Assistance Center is grant-funded, and we the grant that supports us was only available beginning in 2014, 2015, I guess, was when we first um, started that grant. And um, so I've been here from the beginning, and our mission is to provide technical assistance to the direct service staff and the managers of the programs that provide rehabilitation services through each state and territory. So there's um, a certain stream of funding from the Rehabilitation Services Administration, and we support all the programs that are uh, providing services in that funding stream. Um, sometimes we develop products that they can use directly with um, the individuals they serve. And so, um, for instance, we developed the Lessons for Living curriculum, which um, is a resource that, that the service providers can use with the individuals they serve. They might provide that as an audio recording for them to listen to, or in a large print, they can print it out from our website, or any individual person can come to our website and find the lessons for living in the audio and the text formats um, if you'd like to, to see those. So they give a lot of the same tips that I was just giving a minute ago and a whole lot more because it's 19 lessons um, that cover everything from your kitchen to low vision to recreation and leisure to computers, just adjustment to vision loss, everything. Our website is OIB dash t a c dot org 
There's no cost. We are completely 100% grant funded through the RSA funding. And so we're able to make everything available for free. We have um, a large resource section that talks about other organizations that might provide um, helpful services, lists of different types of things like listing by state. Um, there's like a low interest loan program you can get for assistive technology. So if you need that, that $2,000, $3,000 for an electronic magnifier and you can't afford it, you know, maybe you can qualify for one of the low interest loans to be able to, um, to get it. So there's, there's just all kinds of different types of things there that, that might be helpful. We, um, try to, to put things there that are, are helpful to both the service providers and to individuals who um, have lost vision. We also have um, some webinars. We have a webinar each month on different topics, and um, we have all the past webinars that are recorded on our website. You can listen to them for free at any time. Um, so, so yeah, we have a lot of different things there that you might be able to access and find helpful. And people should just go on your website. I also wanted to come back to one other thing that you had mentioned a little earlier, the Time to Be Bold campaign. Tell us a little bit more about that. What's the purpose? And again, how could listeners learn more about it and benefit from, from this campaign? Sure. So um, we developed a public service announcement, and the slogan for a public service announcement is Time to Be Bold. Um and this campaign is um, has a radio and a TV ad that we've been pushing out and sharing on different websites. And um, we have the website timetobebold.org. And from there, you can click through to find services in your state. And these are the programs that are funded through the Rehabilitation Services Administration. And then in addition, because we can't... Um, we don't have enough time to keep up the directory of everything that's available throughout the country. And there are different ways to find services, not just through these rehabilitation programs. Um, we suggest that people contact the APH Connect Center, um, which I'll give that number again now. It's 1-800-232-5463. And then we also suggest people go to the Hadley H A D L E Y dot edu website because they have a lot of great resources for people who are new to vision loss. Um, and we try to connect people just to those things that are available at no charge to them. So yeah, you can click to your state and see how to get referred for the rehabilitation services in your state from, from that page, from the time to be bold over to the finding services section. And I just have to ask, the concept of time to be bold is the idea of encouraging people that rather than to be passive about the fact that they may have a, a low vision uh, condition, that they need to be bold and reach out to get new services or get assessed. Or I was curious to know where the that time to be bold uh, statement came from. Yeah, so there's there's two meanings to the word bold. One being, you know, 
you being bold to reach out for services. And I mean, it's hard to, to admit that we need help, especially when we've been so independent our whole lives. And um, it really is a, a bold thing for an older individual, um, someone who's who's had a lifetime of experience to say, you know, hey, I, I'd like some help with this. So that is the first bold thing. The second thing is, is that when you can't see something, sometimes if you make the font bold, then it's visible to you. So it's time to make things bold so you can see them. Um, and, you know, that's one of the, the tips and tricks that you can do to make your life easier, whether it's on your your phone, your smartphone, making the font bolder, increasing the contrast, you know, or it's, um, you know, use, uh, getting a bold print calendar so you can write your appointments with a bold pen on there. You know, those are all types of things that we would teach you how to do in the rehabilitation services. Time to be bold can be applicable to a lot of situations in life. So uh, it's, it certainly seemed to be a, a very appropriate uh, title for a campaign. So you've given us uh, about uh, information about the Low Vision Resources and Services. Anything else you wanted to add, Kendra? Yeah, I just encourage people to to take the time to look up the the different services that are available. Search in your area because um, not all the services are available in every area. There are um, the rehabilitation services in every state and territory in the U.S., but they're they're not all equal. They, they each have their own unique flavor to them. So just because um, something is available in one way in one area does not mean you'll find the exact same resources in the next area. And that just makes it kind of, of difficult sometimes to find it. So that's why I encourage um, some of the national things like the, the Hadley.edu, you know, has um, the different activity groups that you can uh join remotely through a Zoom meeting and they have so many so many resources there and can help give you a lot of those tips online. They have a live chat. You can go in there and, and chat with a rehabilitation professional live and they'll give you some some tips right there on the website. So all right. Well I want to thank Kendra Farrow, interim project director of the Older Individuals Who Are Blind Technical Assistance Center for joining me today. If you want to learn more about Aging Matters, you can visit our website, which is agingmattersonline.com. And at that site, you can access all of the Aging Matters radio shows, as well as the TV episodes, as well as the podcast. You can find the podcast icon at the bottom of the main page for Apple and Spotify. And you can also subscribe to the Aging Matters monthly email newsletter. And that way you can receive updates every month about new radio shows and TV episodes. Aging Matters is produced in association with Ink Mouth Media. And you can learn more about that organization at inkmouthmedia.com. Thank you for listening to Aging Matters today. And remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week. Aging Matters is sponsored in part by the Aging Life Care Association, an organization of aging life care professionals. Aging life care professionals offer guidance, advocacy, and support for older adults and their families in order to maximize quality of life. An aging life care professional can be there for your loved one when you can't be. 
more information about the Aging Life Care Association is available at www.midatlanticalca.org. Thank you.